0: We're starting now in uh, Ephesians. And there's Paul writing to all these people who have been baptised into Christ. And he's trying to get them to see the wonderful implications of that. These people who have been baptised were largely illiterate. And so they would have only just remembered, I suppose, the basic elements of of the gospel uh, that have been preached to them. And the implications of it, uh, they had to keep on being reminded of. And that is really in that sense uh, true of us that the implications of the fact that we have been baptized under Christ perhaps many years ago now the fact that we are in him need to be really brought out to us time and time again and his whole point is that because we are in Christ therefore we are counted as if we are him and that we really will be saved and that has huge implications for how we are going to interact and, and Relate and respond to others who are in Christ. And so let's start here, chapter 1, verse 4. God has chosen us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love. So then, the theme that He keeps on bringing out in all these letters is that the love that there should be between believers is really an unusual love, because it is motivated by our personal experience of God's love to us. Now, he says there that we are right now, because of living in love, we are right now, before Him, holy and blameless. And yet that phrase, before Him... That is, uh, before the Lord Jesus. He uses very often, and he uses it about the day of judgment. i just give you a few. Romans 14.10, 2 Corinthians 5.10, 2 Timothy 2.14. You've got the same idea uh, in First John 2.28, Revelation 14.5, uh, and a few times in the Gospels. So, right now, in essence, we have our judgment it's not that god has closed the books uh and is uh, sort of looking the other way and then when jesus comes back he'll kind of open the books and see how we got on the essence of judgment is going on right now and i particularly draw your attention to jude 24 where well, we have a picture of the the future day of of judgment uh, let's turn over there to uh, to, to jude 24 He talks about how the Lord Jesus will present you faultless, without blame, before the presence of his glory, with exceeding joy. We should be holy and without blame right now, before him, Ephesians one four says. And yet, we will be before him, faultless, blameless, without blame, same word, in the last day. So, if we live in love, a love... You know, unpretended and, and unfeigned. We are living, as it were, our lives right before the judgment presence of God, and we can therefore, in that sense, have joy and be found blameless because we are in Christ, who is, of course, without blame. And he, Paul, uses the same idea when he writes the uh, Thessalonians, First Thessalonians three verse nine. He says that for your sakes, we rejoice before our God. Again, the same idea of before the Day of Judgment, before His presence. But right now, we rejoice in others. 1 Thessalonians two nineteen and 20. What is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Are not you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at His coming? For you are, right now, our glory and joy. So they were, in this life, His joy. And he knows that they're going to be his rejoicing at the Day of Judgment. In the sense that he'd invested so much effort in these people, just like uh, we do, I guess, with with people. And to see them accepted in the Day of Judgment is going to be a huge dimension of the, the, the personal joy that we will feel in that day. So then our attitudes to others, our love, our care, our effort for others affect our standing before God right now. And in that sense, it affects how we will feel at the, the last day. So then, we cannot just be private believers. Our whole purpose of being in Christ is in making effort for others, and in appreciating that God's plan of salvation was not just to save Duncan, or to save, I don't know, Susan or Vladimir or Jose or whoever, but it was to save a body, a community of people. And according to our attitude to that community in this life, our membership in that body, we determine, I suppose, our eternal future. And he says in verse 5 that he has predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself. Verse 6, to the praise of the glory of His grace, wherein He has made us accepted in the Beloved. Right now, we are accepted because we are in Christ, because everything that's true of Him is now counted to us personally. Now, he links the idea of predestination and the idea of grace here. And that's really why Paul starts talking about predestination in Romans. He doesn't just... Uh, turn over a leaf and think, yeah, okay, I'll write to them a bit about predestination, just kind of for the, for the kick of it kind of thing. He talks about predestination and uh, the role of uh, Israel in that predestinated purpose in the context of trying to demonstrate to us that salvation is by grace, that it is a pure gift unrelated to, in that sense, our works in the sense of our achievement. The fact that God has marked off certain people ahead of time for salvation is maybe the parade example, the the strongest reason for accepting that salvation is by grace. And we were predestinated to be his children, and that happens because we are in Christ, who was the preeminent son of God, And he has made us accepted, verse 6, because we are in the Beloved. That is the Beloved Son. And I think we could maybe read in an ellipsis there. Because we are in the Beloved Son. This is my Beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. In that sense, we are his his children. So then, what does this uh, work out at in practice? Well, in Philippians 4, 2 and 3... Paul uses the idea of predestination, I think, in a practical sense. He says that Euodia and Syntyche should resolve their differences because their names were written in the Book of Life. So if you're predestinated to eternity, and I also am predestinated to it, then we should get on with each other now. Because that is such an amazing grace that you have received and that I have received. Any human difference which there is between us did not ought to be significant. Nothing in that sense ultimately should be impossible of reconciliation. And the fact that people come to the end of their lives in Christ unreconciled uh, to their brethren, if that fault is on their side, I know we can't do anything about those who will not resolve with us, but if it's in any sense our fault, that was a, a failure that was avoidable. And I think we need to just remember that. Now, he talks in verse 8 there, um, verse 8, about how he has abounded toward us. Uh, Verse 7, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, in which he has abounded toward us. He lavished it upon us. He has lavished his grace upon us god is in that sense extravagant with his grace he's not one of those people who invites you around to their place for a meal and is carefully calculating how much the bread cost and how much uh, juice you drank and all the rest of it and how expensive the meat was and uh, all that kind of stuff he loves being generous with his grace that really is pretty obvious because if he had no other if he had any other attitude to his grace toward us then he simply wouldn't wouldn't tolerate us now, there is this superabundance of God's grace, and that's a theme that comes out throughout the Bible, really. And I think you see it particularly in the feeding miracles, where in all those miracles, in all the gospel records, there is the note that there was such a huge amount of leftover uh, broken pieces in, in the 12 baskets, etc. And they all use a word there. That's poorly translated, that uh, yes, sort of mean is translated, that which was left, uh, that which was over. And yet the idea is of superabundance. There was a superabundance left over, and you think, well, why did he do that? Why didn't he just, you know, why not, why be so as it were wasteful? Why, why not just give the hungry people what they needed, and that's it? Why make a whole load of stuff that, uh, that wasn't in the end used, or not used for the, the immediate need? And I think it was to just show us that God's grace is lavished. You know, this uh, verse 8 there, uh, he has abounded toward us, he has lavished it upon us. Now, that grace of God should be reflected in our dealings with others. And so, in the same way as he is so supremely generous to us, That should be a feature, a characteristic of our behaviour and our interaction with others. And you'll only get the motivation to to be like that, to give you know, fully pressed down good measure, as it were. You only get the motivation to be like that if you yourself have perceived the extent of God's grace to you. And time and again, you come back to the simple fact that we are in Christ. The whole purpose of having been given this grace, the whole basis of it, is because everything that's true of Jesus becomes true of us by this great grace that he has shown. And <clears throat> we've obtained, verse 11, that inheritance. Because we are in him. In whom? In him. We've obtained an inheritance. This is putting the truth of Galatians 3:27 to 29 in another way. That the inheritance promised to Abraham is true for us because we are in Christ. And everything that was promised to the seed, the singular seed, is true of us. You know how he reasons there in Galatians. He gives us a grammar lesson that the promises were to Abraham and his seed. And the seed, he says, is singular. And so how then can it be that this blessing is given to uh, people as many as the grains of sand on the seashore and the stars in the sky how can that be because we are in christ and we are therefore that singular seed that's how it works out and again verse 13 in whom or into whom you trusted it's an allusion there to baptism into him after you heard the word of truth So, after you hear the gospel of your salvation, then you trust into him by baptism into him. Now, all this has has got to come out practically in some ways. You can't just marvel at God's grace like this and and just shrug and say, well, that's cool. Uh, It has to be reflected practically. And in verse 16, I think you get one example of it. Paul says that he does not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you or remembering you, in my prayers, and he says this, in fact, to, um, to pretty well all the people that he writes to, that I'm praying for you all the time, and if you want to scribble it down, Romans 1, 1.9, 1 Thessalonians 1, 1.2, Philemon 4, in fact, all, all the letters have, have got this. He was praying all the time, and when he says there in 16, that I make mention of you in my prayers, I remember you, this little Greek word, menea, it's the same word used in the Septuagint for the memorial of the uh, incense offering, Leviticus 2, or uh, through Leviticus 2, 2:16, two etc. And it's also used for the constant fire that was on the altar, Leviticus 6, uh, 12, and 13. So then, in the same way as there was a constant fire, there was a constant incense burning there in the holy place, so he sees his prayer for others... Likewise, bringing others, as it were, into God's remembrance, into God's awareness. Now, now that is, of course, a metaphor. Um, But it's uh, used in Isaiah 62, where those who pray for Zion are described as the Lord's remembrances. It's not that he forgets, as it were, but it is true that our prayers can have an, uh, an influence, let's say, on God's working in the lives of others which would not otherwise happen were it not for our prayers and if our prayers for others cannot ultimately affect God's dealing with them and he just deals with people just purely as individuals then the whole concept of prayer for others would be somewhat meaningless but the fact that our prayers for others do have such meaning and that they do in this metaphor remind God of others that means that if that's true that my prayers can affect your eternal, eternal outcome in your destiny then I should be praying for you all the time and you should be praying for me all the time please and Paul's example of continually saying that he prays all the time for those he's writing to and he writes this to all of them I mean he really is the living example of that now I've said that all that is true of Jesus is true of us if we are in him and in a very profound way although the, the words of translation is somewhat difficult in verse 22 and 23 he brings this out he says that Jesus has been given to be the head over all things to the church which is his body the fullness of him that fills all in all so the full of God and of Jesus is to be found in us. Now, what does this mean? It seems to me that it could mean that absolutely everything that is true of Jesus, the full uh, fullness of his character, is in some sense counted to us absolutely fully. That it's not that God thinks, well, okay, Duncan, will just scrape in. Okay, I'll let him off. It's that he looks at us as if we are fully Jesus. Now, in John 1, we read, verse 14, we beheld his glory. It's very much alluding to the declaration of the glory in Exodus 34, Uh, verse 16 of John 1, we beheld his glory full of grace and truth, and of his fullness have all we received. And this word fill, here in Ephesians one twenty three, the fullness of him that fills all in all. So you get it again in Colossians 2, nine and 10. In him dwells all the fullness, in Christ dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And you are complete, or filled, same word, in him. Because we're in him, his fullness, which is God's fullness, is counted to us. Now because Jesus was perfect in his character, you know he who has seen me, has seen the Father, this is an amazing thing to say that this is counted to us. There's another sense in which we, we can read all this though, and it's like this: that if the, the complete fullness of Jesus, as in his model splendor, his model character is counted to us, as in the church, it could mean that the church as a whole reflects everything that there is in Jesus. Now, the fullness of God and the fullness of Jesus refer to his character. When uh, Moses wanted to see God's glory... God uh, appeared to him and didn't actually give him very much of a physical vision, but he said, I am Yahweh, Yahweh, a God full of, basically, grace and truth, um, a full of mercy and and justice and integrity and judgment, uh, etc. So it could be that the body of Christ, as in that group of people, both in existence at this moment in time and also historically, the believers that have been all down the generations, that if you were to put us all together, all those, however many there are, millions or however many there are, of all those who have ever been in Christ and who will ultimately be in his kingdom, that between us, we are Christ. What I mean by that is that, okay, one aspect of the glory of God and the glory, therefore, of Jesus was uh, justice. And another aspect was forgiveness. And another aspect was, whatever, kindness. Another aspect was uh, not forgiving, uh, impenitent uh, iniquity. You look at all those characteristics that make up the essence of God. You could argue that each member of the body of Christ, because none of us, of course, are, are at all perfect, but each member of the body of Christ has displayed different aspects of those characteristics in a different way. For example, some people are uh, sort of judgmental, I mean in a a kind of good sense, uh, in the divine sense of being uh, just in judgment. Other people like me would sort of let let them all in, basically, um, and might be a bit better at uh, forgiving. Uh, Someone else may be very good at kindness or, or whatever. So you could say that between us, just imagine all those millions of people who have been in Christ at some point in in time, that between us, as a community, a community admittedly over time as well as space, uh, that between us we manifest the fullness of who God and Jesus really are. And running with that idea for a a little bit, um, that would explain why some people are, if you like, good at some aspects of God's character and not so good at others. But all the same, I think that the whole context here in Ephesians is talking really about how we in fullness are counted as Jesus. We as individuals. Not, of course, that we are. See in chapter 2 there, verse 6. He has raised us up together, co-resurrected is literally what the Greek is saying, uh, together with Christ, and has made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ. So in the same way as Jesus died and rose again, so that's what happened when we were baptized. And he even goes further and says that as Jesus ascended to heaven, so that in a sense happened to us that we have had this uh, great experience of God's grace being really counted as him. And he says why this is, or one reason why it is, verse 7, so that in the ages to come, surely talking of the ages of eternity after Jesus has come back, so that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace are you saved. Or by grace, have you been saved? So our experience now of salvation by grace is going to be the basis of God's witness in the ages to come. So the gospel, if you like, or the uh, exemplification of the good news and the love of God that is going to be witnessed about forever and ever, and one would assume that this implies uh, to others to some other form of creation it will all be about how God was so gracious to us so in the same way as we in our generation read the Old Testament and we read let's say the story of David and Bathsheba and how God forgave him by grace even though he should have died uh, for what he did and we think wow yes isn't that wonderful the message that is going to be preached in the ages to come is that you know what at uh, 8 minutes past 3, 23 seconds, uh, Greenwich Mean Time, um, in uh, Riga, Latvia, uh, Duncan Heaster did this, that, or the other, or he thought a bad thought about somebody when God had just been so kind to him. Uh, you know, this guy had uh, had a scare, medical scare, he went to the... Uh, doctor for checkup. the guy was praying to God like anything, and God gave him the all-clear, and he was so happy, and then he got back and sat in his car, had a phone call from somebody, and he started cranking away in a most ungracious way, and you know what? God forgave him. You know? That sort of grace that God has uh, shown to each of us in this life, <clears throat> according to what he says here, this is going to be the basis of the showing of the exceeding riches of His grace in the ages to come. So, we, as I read this, we and our uh, experiences of forgiveness, uh, our episodes of failure uh, and uh, grace that we've received, etc., which is you know, what people, really, the Old Testament is and the, the New Testament, it, it's a historical record of God's grace. Uh, what's going on in your life and my life? Right now, this is going to be the basis of God's witness throughout the ages to come. Now, this is this is really profound, because we may think that my life is insignificant, that I'm sitting here kicking time. But every moment and every episode in our spiritual lives, and they're going on if we would only perceive it all the time, is going to be the basis of God's eternal witness throughout the ages to come. Now, we've talked a lot about grace, and I have said that this cannot just be somehow um, passively accepted by us. God has spent, if you like, a huge amount of effort, or time, if you want to put it in human terms, but a huge amount of effort, let's say, in working out this wonderful way of lavishing grace upon us both now and eternally and one very simple thing that we can take from this is to go away and think what grace can I show to somebody else what can I do that would make them take a breath and think wow not wow what a good bloke he is or she is but wow the grace of God that led John or whoever it was to do that for me. That I, is something I would like us to take away. That is a huge homework. And it's no good saying, well, it's not for me. I, uh, I uh, can't do that. You see, I don't have any money. It's something to do with money. People don't need, in that sense, money or material stuff. They need the comfort of God's love. They need the comfort of His grace. That's what people need. And that's what you and I have been reading here in Ephesians 1 and 2 to us personally. And our response is to go and reflect that to others.